0: I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. So I'm here today with Manny Burke. Manny Burke is uh, the proprietor of Rare Wine Company. Uh, the importer and also retailer uh, based in California. Hi, Manny. Nice to see you. Hi, Levy. Good to be here. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved with wine. You were kind of more involved in the
1: advertising angle when working for a small wine shop originally, is that true? Um, uh, Kind of. Um, I was uh, I was actually working for the, the mayor of Boston oh, in okay. the late 70s. and Was that Mayor White? That was Mayor White. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yep. Was it you with the bussing and No, it was
1: uh, a little bit after bussing, but it was it was definitely still a, a pretty stormy time in Boston and uh my job was was redeveloping um uh neighborhood business areas in the city. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, it was very political and I had, I'd worked in Chicago before you. you oh, okay. You would yeah. think that, you know, I would have figured it out. <laughs> right. Figured it out. In Frying Chicago. pan, fire and, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I was a little slow. And uh, so I spent a total of 10 years doing that and decided that it was way too political for me. I was more, I was really an idealist and I wanted to, <clears throat> you know, save cities. And and that's why and you got involved. Cause that you, was it. Yeah. 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 And uh, just decided that, it that, it wasn't my thing, and so um, about 1980, I decided that I wanted a, a career change and thought about the things that I could do that I really enjoyed, and and uh, wine popped up to the to the surface. It took me a couple of years to figure out well what what was I going to do in wine. I actually spent most of that time trying to to either buy a wine shop or open a wine shop, and. Uh, came really close a couple of times um <clears throat> i actually had a uh, uh uh i made an offer for a little wine shop in brookline mass in it was probably about 1981 and uh called up the owner and said you know you know i'll buy it i'll be over in 20 minutes you know with with the money i drive up to the store and there was uh, a guy that i knew who was the local rep for uh, louis latour Burgundy's. Standing in front of the shop with a big smile on his face because he had bought it. Wow! He had bought it for his girlfriend. And uh, how does that happen? I, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't too happy about it. So it was you know sort of back to the drawing board at that point.
0: Boy, that's like a DI order or something. It really it's like, is. get it in yeah. now. The closeout. Definitely, close some, out, definitely you know. some
1: insider information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you I mean, kinda... the amazing thing was it really was about twenty minutes uh, between I made the phone call and the. Guy's, if only you'd found a parking, parking place a little closer I guess to the so. shop. Or if or I or... hadn't lived in. Dorchester, and stuff. right, right, yeah. Wow, you know, well, he lived
0: in Dorchester in the eighties. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, one time I went to Dorchester and well, I had got out. <laughs> there was a, a, a gang of small youths like following me and, yeah, and yelling yeah. at me.
1: It was like that, yeah. Yeah. I mean my neighbor, um I was in a in a neighborhood that was it was actually the sort of the political neighborhood of of uh of Dorchester. And because there were there were residency laws at that time, if you worked for the city you had to live in the city. Oh okay. And so there was this this wonderful neighborhood called Ashmont Hill and basically everybody there was either had a job. A, a job with the city or a job with the state. Oh, okay. And uh, it was a really neat neighborhood. And then on the fringes of it, you know, were people who were not political and, you know, who just were – that their families have been in Dorchester for, for generations. And uh, it was fun. It was an interesting time. I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. Because
0: so, you still see those fault lines in, in Massachusetts, I think.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah.
0: along ethnic lines. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so the, the Brookline deal fell through um, – I actually put a deposit down on a piece of real estate on the waterfront in Portland, Maine, oh, okay. uh to do a wine shop to do, you know, a new wine shop there. Um but unfortunately the building it was an old building on the waterfront that was owned by the, the state of Maine. And you know, sort of, you know, talk about being back in the in the fire. You um, <clears throat> know, waiting for the state of Maine to you know to actually move on the on the on the whole project sure. because it was. I just had one space. It was all this other space that had to be had to be dealt with. Did that and, finally
0: come through like uh, last
1: week? Uh, yeah, the maybe. paperwork. I, I, <laughs> yeah,
0: they haven't let me know about it. Yet. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Anyways, I got tired of waiting. I got tired of working for the city. And actually, the 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 uh, the the turning point was. Um, was in November of just November of of eighty two, um, doing standing at the polls uh, when it was uh, Dukakis was was running for you know for president. Sure, that's right. And uh, standing there, you know, handing out leaflets, and uh, I just decided, you know, that morning that you know I. I was done Mm -hmm. i was you know i I couldn't you know it was was taking too long i had to do something so the next morning i walked in and uh, gave my notice and stayed for i guess another month to to wrap things up and um in the meantime had to had to do something had to find something and so there was a it was a very good um wine shop in harvard square called uh cav which had um Recently, uh, expanded and they, they had a, a shop in West, in Chestnut Hill Mall and one in, uh, on, a very, very posh one in uh, downtown Boston on, on Boylston Street. Oh. So I got a job for six bucks an hour as a quote unquote wine consultant. And I, 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 at that point, even though I was just, I was an amateur, I was a real amateur. I really loved wine. I was pretty knowledgeable. So I was able to, to do that, you know, very easily. The problem is that, that a month after I, I went to work for them. They declared bankruptcy. Oh, so uh, I was you know back in the back in the fire. Yeah, at least back on the street. Um, I went to Newport, Rhode Island, and got a a job working for uh, the the best local wine shop there. It was a couple of of brothers who, when I was looking around New England for a a place to have a a wine shop, uh, and I went to to uh, Newport. I thought that would be a very promising market. I went into the into the shop and uh I was so impressed by these guys uh that I just decided I wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a big enough market for the both of us. So I went away. But you know oh, wow. I had remembered them. And so, you know, when I was available again, I called them up and said, you know, would you just have me come to work for you? They said, absolutely. You know, and the next day I was I was down there working. Uh and it was a great thing for me because it was they were very, they were very passionate and good businessmen, but they didn't have a, a huge amount of wine knowledge. And so, um, you know, and I was kind of already kind of a wine geek. And so they basically turned over all of their advertising, their tastings. Uh, they you know, had me train the local, you know, the, the, the wait staff and restaurants in New, Newport. It's really a fun job. And that, it was actually the summer of the last, uh, uh, America's cup, the one, the first one that we lost. Got it. Uh, in, in uh, that was in, uh in 83 83 um so I was there for that summer I I think I saw that on television yeah as a kid yeah um it was a big deal because we'd never lost it you Mm -hmm. know that was the first time I guess I was a I was a jinx well Uh,
0: (laughs) that sounds like you did such great work for Dukakis I can't imagine
1: how that could I did tell him not to wear the not to wear the helmet and right right. yeah yeah
0: I was trying to make the tank joke but it just wasn't coming yeah
1: yeah. it was tanky um It was, I just stayed there for a few months and then I, uh, I decided I was really good at writing about wine because I'd done a lot of writing in government. And, uh, so I, I decided to start a a business doing basically doing wine newsletters and, and and stuff. And I went around the country and basically, you know, uh, signed up a whole bunch of wine shops, uh, uh, Chicago, uh, guy in Boston, Dallas, um, New Jersey, there was a chain in New Jersey, a whole bunch in in New York, and started a little company called Wine Letters, um, uh, where I basically it was looked a little wine advertising agency and I see. Uh, did lots of New York Times ads, Wine Spectator ads. I uh, mean, you know, Crossroads, the uh, little wine shop on on Fourteenth Street, um, I did all their ads for years, and it was a great way to learn the business because you know I was able to see you know how wine sells
0: right um, kind of before wine searcher you were kind of the guy that put like numbers on pages and talked a little bit about the wines and yeah like yeah. kind of proto email blast
1: it really was you know. because prior to at that point you know wine was all brick and mortar it was all wine shops you Yeah, know, there were no mail order there were very few mail order businesses wine businesses i mean i guess the chicago wine company was about as close to one as you would find um but basically you know wine was was sold in a store you went you know you either called them up on the phone or you went down there and so um and there was a fair amount of, of print advertising that was done especially in in New York and uh, so, but I, I got I got to learn how I mean what what can you reasonably expect to sell you know from a, from an ad for example or a newsletter and I see. you know and and I was able to you know to test my pros and see you know what, what what sorts of words what sorts of ideas um, compel people and so it was it was a fantastic education I did it for a few years. Um, <clears throat> Actually, the year, the next year, um, a friend of mine and I got a a book contract with Simon and Schuster to do a book on old wine, which was was always my, always was and still is my, my, you know. My greatest greatest passion. That's your that's your thing. Yeah, yeah it really is my thing. Um,
0: as I've been lucky to find out yeah. <laughs> several times. Yeah,
1: yeah. They're uh, you know it's it's a different ex- old wine is a different ex- experience from young wine, and you know and, and I find that as I'm looking at young wine, I'm looking for characteristics that I get out of old wine. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of that's the way my my brain works. Uh, but we got this contract and um to write this book, and I was. Spending a lot of time traveling in Europe, uh, doing amazing tastings. I mean, you talk about how things have changed, and you know the experiences you could have then that you couldn't have now. Um, on one particular trip, um, I just spent a week in Champagne and had these visits at visits at Krug, Clicquot, uh, Pommery, uh, who actually used to in the '50s and '40s made a, made an amazing champagne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Roger, Bollinger. And uh, at each place, they basically rolled out the carpet and put together these uh, unbelievable vertical tastings. I mean, for example, at Krug, uh, they opened up, and this is all Krug collection, so yeah. you could imagine, you know, what the stuff would be worth now. now then right. it didn't have, have have nearly as much value 1928 1949 wow. 1959 1969 um, this is for you know you know a young guy who's you know got a book contract but no, nobody's ever heard of sure uh, Paul Roger it was 1914 uh, was the oldest and that was a really special wine because um during the 1914 harvest the germans were shelling um around rounds and i didn't realize yeah and uh, a lot of a lot of the the people a lot of the harvesters were were killed during the harvest and it was always said that the blood of france runs in the 1914 vintage and so being able to taste um you know an absolutely amazing bottle of 1914 paul roger there um, it was just such an emotional experience. I mean, to this day, it's the greatest wine experience I've ever had. Um, and we also had 1921 and 1928, and that was how it, that was how it went. And, you know, we, it did similar things in Barolo and in Burgundy and in Bordeaux. It was just – it was wonderful. Um, part of my interest in wine is also cultural, sure. you know, historical. I mean, I'm interested in – um, wine is not just a beverage it 's it's really a, a manifestation of of the people the times the geology the you know the weather all the things that 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 conspire to make a wine what it is um, and uh so i I was also doing a lot of, of of sort of cultural research i was I spent a lot of time in Belgium learning about the this amazing um, uh, culture of of wine connoisseurship, which really predated the rest of the world by a few decades. Um, and I would say, you know, say up to the 1950s, really only the British knew as much about fine wine as the Belgians did. Is that
0: because they're kind of an intersection to several different wine producing countries?
1: You know, um, I think it's it's probably that. I mean, there's so close, so close to France, and so close to to Germany. Also, I mean, it's you know, it's it's, it. They've been very serious about cuisine for for a long time. time. Um, Something else which is really, I think, is, is part of it. Um, and, and, and certainly, the, you know, having access to the, the wine regions is really important. But another thing that's really that's, that's critical is that they had a direct pipeline to Pomerol and San emilion which the rest of the world didn't have. I see. And so the reason why you hear about, about um, you know, 47, 49 Petrus uh, and 47 Chevalbon that are bottled, in Belgium, you like Van der right. for example, yeah. um, is that they that, mo- that a very large part of the production. Of Pomerol, uh, and, to a somewhat lesser extent, Saint-Léon was going straight to Belgium in barrel and being bottled there. I see. And so they they had, <laughs> you know, direct access, just the same way that the British had their pipeline to the Medoc. Um, sure. The Belgians had a you know had a direct pipeline to uh, uh, to, to 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 the right bank, and, um, and they have this you know this wonderful history of 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 not only uh, Belgian bottled. Bordeaux but also burgundy and even when I was there in the late 80s doing my research they were still buying bo- burgundy and barrel and having it bottled there uh, it was really very extraordinary but part of my research was also um, looking at, at at consumption and, and consumerism um, and I spent a fair amount of time in London which is another it was a another advanced wine culture. Sure, uh, especially for <clears throat> old wine. For uh, Absolutely. You know, still
0: today, I think, even. You know, yeah. Although,
1: I think less so, than, less so than then. I mean, I think that the, the the new generation of British wine lovers uh, has kind of lost that.
0: Wants uh, more of a discount than has, they want, like something old.
1: Yeah, well, I think they want discounts. I think they, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation in wine. Sure. Um, I think their tastes have, have changed a lot. I, I I think the British are very much like the rest of the world at this point and whereas 30 years ago <clears throat> it was very much a different a different wine scene um but anyways during my during my research there i went into a wine shop um and uh it was owned by a couple of MWs, and I looked on. The, I was just browsing around, and I, I noticed that they had a bunch of Madeiras on the shelf that were they, the prices just seemed really, you know, just stupidly cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, wines from the 19th century that were selling for the, the equivalent of, of 40 or 50 dollars a bottle. Wow. And so I asked, I asked them, you know, why are these so cheap? Yeah. And and the owner said that that um, uh, that a couple of the big Madeira shippers, uh, Blandys and Cosarts, that that their longtime UK agent had been bought by by Bass uh, Ale, the 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 big brewing uh, conglomerate, and uh, because the Madeira market was dead, uh, and they had all these old stocks, they were basically unloading them uh, at really cheap prices. So even though I had you know I was I hadn't. Really plan to become a wine merchant or a wine importer? It was just one of those. It was one of those opportunities you have in life where you basically pass or play. You have to make a decision: is this something I got to do because an opportunity like this is never going to happen again. Sure. Or do I just, you know, forget about it and move on. I decided I was gonna gonna take a close look. So I the next morning I contacted this uh this agent which was Hedges and Butler, which is you know, you talking about history, it was a a a a London wine merchant that had, had been started in the sixteen hundreds. Wow. And uh, said, "I hear that you're unloading a bunch of Madeira. Do you have a price list?" And the guy, the guy faxed over. At that point, there was no, there was no email. There was, you know, no internet. That's right. Um, you know, it was basically fax and and a, in a uh, obscure technology called telex. Right. Uh, anyways, but he, he was. I still have the fax that he sent on the uh, that really stinky paper mm-hmm. that used to come out of fax machines. Yeah. And, uh, with the price list, and, um, I, I ended up, I didn't have any money, first of all, but fortunately, I had a very good friend who, uh, still, still is a very, very good friend who was also a Madeira lover, uh, who, who did have the money and he, he was willing to, uh, to bankroll me. And, uh, I ended up buying, I made two purchases. I know the first purchase was 400 cases. Wow. And the second was another two or 300 cases. And, um, of, you know, today, um, irreplaceable, irreplaceable Madeira, um, a lot of money. Uh, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. Yeah. I just knew that I had to buy it. And um, so I did the the most logical thing, which was I got a, a an import, a license to import wine into the U.S., and uh, set up a company. And again, I didn't know how I was going to market and distribute it. And uh, But I, f- I figured it out over the next couple of years. This was 1980, 88, 89. Uh, I got my license in 89. Um, first couple of years, I actually s- uh, sold through a friend's uh, uh, retail license in Chicago. And then uh, in 92, I realized that um, <clears throat> that... My passion for the kinds of wines that I loved and my love of communicating directly to consumers was what I, what really drives me. And so I decided I wanted to have my own retail business, wanted to have my own newsletters and, and things like that. And I wanted to specialize in, you know, the kinds of wines that I love. Um, and so that was 92. And, uh, I had to figure out where could I do that? And the, then as now the, you know, the wine laws in the U S are kind of a minefield. Sure. Um, there are very few places where you can sort of follow your heart and your passion. I mean, you're so regulated and so restricted in what you could do. The only, there was only one state where you could do it. And that was California
0: where you can both import and retail.
1: And also be a wholesaler. And you also- can do you can do whatever you want. And, and very and a really important part of that is that not only can you import, but you can import any wine. Most states have uh, something called primary source laws, which which basically say that 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 that. Uh, such and such company has been designated the official importer sure. by the producer like New York has like or New- Massachusetts has. Yeah. Massachusetts definitely does. Um, I think it's around 30 States that have it. Um, and, uh,
0: you can't get around it. Like if somebody else has certain XYZ it, 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 Chateau, they own, they own the brand. They, They're, the they bring it in.
1: They're the only ones who can, who can, uh, bring it into the, into the state. And so, um, uh, you know, it basically, I mean, I, I discovered it the hard way in Illinois, where I remember buying some, you know, thirty-year-old uh, Dom Pérignon and some old uh, Châteaurayas, and got reported to the got it. to the state of Illinois.
0: So even though you're selling vintages that, that the other not, guy would never sell ever, yes, you, he's still giving you a hard time because he he feels like he's associated with the brand and you're not
1: right. And it's and legally he can do that. I right. mean, you know, it's not. It's I don't I don't criticize the company for you know for taking advantage of the right. What sure. I criticize is the law because it's you know it's anti-consumer. Um, it you know as you as you as you noticed. I mean it it doesn't didn't matter whether they had that particular vintage. Right. Um, it's any vintage of of these particular wines.
0: And the uh, long story short of that is that the people in Chicago are not drinking those vintages, essentially because they're not they're not drinking the old stuff yeah. nobody and, else and, is making. And you
1: it actually look at Illinois and and you know and it's a market which is is dominated by one big retail chain. I see. Um uh there's there are not a lot of small independent uh wine shops. Um you know it doesn't have the thriving market that New York and, New York and California does. has. I mean we had a situation in in California I'd say about 8 years ago where a primary source law uh was proposed it was it was submitted into the legislature um it was the second time it had happened it happened once before about 2025 20, years earlier and um you know we basically had to mobilize all the you know both consumers and retailers and and you know and small importers to stop it and we were able we we're, were able to stop it otherwise you know you'd see the the California market um you know becoming a lot less interesting uh, as far as new york i it's my understanding I mean it, there may be some sort of a prohibition on the books, but basically there's a workaround which mm-hmm. which allows you know a f- relatively open market I see. in new york um you know i don't don't do business here, so i don't don't really know but um you know that's my that's my impression. That's, that's the impression. yeah,
0: so it seems to me like you started to really get behind uh, in a real um, putting your wallet uh, where your love was um, old wine and certain old wines that weren't so popular right at the moment that they were becoming less and less popular because of the rise of um, consumer publications that were advocating younger wines, Mm -hmm. uh, more fruit forward wines, less tannic wines, less of the the aged wines that you Mm -hmm. may have liked. And that you also sort of did it in California, which was – a place uh, where that was really happening a lot Mm -hmm. during the rise of California Cabernet in in a big way. Um, Do you find yourself kind of naturally drawn towards fighting the good fight in a sense, or does that just not even come up? I mean, it seems like even though that was the one place that the laws allowed you to do it, Mm It was the time and the place where what you were doing might have been the least popular. Maybe that forced you to do it on your own rather than just expecting people to show up and ask you for it. Yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, I've always believed in niche markets. I think that mm-hmm. no matter what else is happening in the world, there's always going to be a place for somebody who, um, <clears throat> to champion uh, something that has you know real intrinsic value sure. and quality i mean and those and people are out there
0: have you seen that grow oh ab- with the rise of the internet and
1: yeah i mean it, the, the internet helps although i have to say that in all the years that where we were our main mode of communication was the newsletter it was in a in a way that may surprise you it may have been, may have been easier is that true yeah there's so much noise now mm-hmm. I and mean, there's so much there's so much competing information, it's it's a little bit more difficult to get people's attention. I think people are reading less than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I find your newsletters very thorough.
1: Well, thank you. Like,
0: and, you know, there's certain information about, say, a Barolo producer that's actually really hard to find just in general. Because yeah. there's not so many books on a topic. I mean, there's a couple, but not that go into the level of depth often that your newsletters do on the producers that you carry?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, we, you know, we feel, feel it's part of, of our job to, to, you know, to educate. I mean, it's to, it's to educate and and to create passion and interest and get people to try certain kinds of wines. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually becoming harder, harder to do. Um, And You know, I mean, first of all, the wine business, even though we're in California, you know, the wine business... The fine wine business is a is a national, national. If, if not a global market. You can ship at, to at this point. Or, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, customer you know, serious collectors are buying, and you know, not only buying in the U.S. and many of them are buying buying in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's rare to find a collector who is satisfied just dealing with one merchant. So there's you know there's a, a, a lot of competition. So th- there is a there's a large pool of potential customers. The, you know the the challenges is is, re- is is reaching them. So the internet is Good in terms of of um, you know it, there there are, there are other ways of getting getting your message out problem is reaching people and um you know twenty years ago it was just easier i mean you know there weren't that many voices out there uh when i when I got started
0: well be that as it may it seems like things that you have um really gotten behind like madeira mm-hmm. you've Uh, maybe because of you, you know, there's been a market that's developed around them that maybe wasn't there at least not in America, at least not since the 1950s. Mm -hmm. You know, where I mean, obviously Madeira and United States have a a strong relationship Mm -hmm. in colonial days, but um, wasn't so popular mid 20th century. And I feel like um, it's something that a lot of restaurants now offer. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not you're not assured to see it, but it's very much more common than it was uh, when I first started my career, and I feel like that maybe. Uh, partly in thanks to you. And I've also seen traditional Barolo um become much more popular uh, than it was, uh, you know, maybe in the early 90s or mid 90s. And I, I think that you might have something to do with that as well. So it seems like some some markets have changed a little bit, maybe because of your influence or what you're offering or because you were willing to explain it.
1: Um I hope we you know I hope we contributed to it. I mean I the, the I can tell you the the areas that the the kinds of wines that have always meant a lot to me personally and, and to our company. Uh you mentioned Madeira and traditional Barolo. Um basically tradi- traditionally made wine of of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um and you know it's wines that really do have a sense of of time and place. Um there's no you know they haven't suffered from what I think a lot of modern winemaking does, which is to, to rub out their, their character to make them a little bit more like other wines. I like wines that, you know, you know, whether they're flawed or not, whether they, you know, that they're, they're things that you know you might may consider imperfections. At least they have character and they have a certain nobility as a as a result. And so you know, not just traditional Barolo, um, uh, you know, traditional California Cabernet is something that sure. you know that that we that we work on. Um, Cote Roti is a you know is a good example of mm-hmm. the kind of place that I I feel like we need that my company needs to to help and support because. Uh, I think it's one of the great vineyard areas of of the world, um, and it 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 you know it's it doesn't have the uh, you know uh, yeah I think it's I think it's at the same level as you know Chablis Chambertin mm-hmm. and um, and I think you know many of the wines are absolutely the you know the same level as the best of those wines, um, but it's not appreciated. I mean, Hermitage gets more you know gets more attention um, you know within Kot roti you know gigal uh, casts a very very big shadow and so a lot of the other you know smaller producers like like Jamais, um, you know get get lost um, you know you have you have these mythic producers like like Jean Taz sure. who um you know, is, they're starting to become a cult following for it. Well, unfortunately <laughs> the wines don't exist anymore. And sure. They've gotten incredibly expensive. You know, so once again, you have the same problem you have with Gigal, which is so Genta's now is casting a big shadow. And so, you know, so that there's a natural tendency, oh, I want to have Genta's because that's the best. Yeah. But when you put them on the same table with old wines from, say, Jasmine, for example, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, you know, you find out that you know, it's similar philosophy, you know, um, but different character and pretty much the same style. I mean, it's not same style, same quality, mm-hmm. same same level of of of, of interest. Um, and so, you know, the message is a complicated message, and um, you know, there's all these market forces that you're you know you're working at. You know, the other problem you have is you know old champagne. Now, you know, it was the time at the beginning of my my company, and you could tell that I, I love old champagne and. you you know, early on, we were big advocates of it before it became uh, popular. Uh, that's all. You know, it's not possible anymore for us really to 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 be players because the prices have gotten so high. Is that uh, true? Oh, it's just it's just all it's painful. Um, so we, uh, you know, I I I get a little bit of it when I can. Um, you know, I, I love to drink it at home. But it's very hard to to get, you know, but we've, uh, I've sort of, I've replaced that whole that hole in my heart with uh, the privilege of representing uh, Anselm Salas. Sol- sure. Um, Who a lot of people regard as father figure to the,
0: young, you know, the younger, more adventurous generation really looks to as inspirational.
1: Yeah. And, and to my palate... Um, uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see anybody else making wine of that quality of mm-hmm. that. And again, it's a matter of taste. It's mm-hmm. not, I shouldn't use the word quality. You know, there's just, there's a character to his wines. There's a, <clears throat> um, this brilliant transparency and intense minerality that I just find uh, over, you know, almost overwhelming.
0: Say I wanted to really enjoy a Solos wine. Do you have any tips for me on how I should serve it?
1: Um great question. Um definitely not too cold, you know, sort of uh cellar temperature or a couple of degrees cooler than that. Mm-hmm. Um I actually de- I decant it. Mm-hmm. Uh I also don't serve it in flutes. I use uh, white wine glasses cuz I like a little bit bigger bowl. Um I, I find that a champagne flute for good champagne tends to I don't know, it tends to restrict it a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um I, I like the I like roundness in wines. Yeah. Um i mean the sensuality of it and um so i like wines you know i don't want i don't want too many bubbles or too too too, too, too you know too sharp uh, uh, bubbles i like something uh, i like a foaming mousse and champagne which i think uh, a large a little bit larger bowl gives you um You know, obviously, with an older champagne, you have to be more careful because there's there are fewer bubbles in it, and you want to have a little bit colder to to keep the bubbles inside. Uh, But for youngish Solace or other great champagnes, um, as I said, I like a white wine glass, and I like them. I you know if if I think that the wines respond well to air, which I do do believe with Solace, I like to I often decant them.
0: Something like initial. Would you decant that and serve that right away, or would you decant that and give it some time? And would it be the same for something like substance? Sometimes I wonder, you know, how the wines would show the very best. Um. Um, it
1: was, it's funny you should ask Levy because I, I'm, I'm very excited because um, a couple months ago I bought a pretty, you know, well pretty substantial amount of of. Initial that was disgorged, uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm really excited about it. Um, in fact, the day that I bought it, I went down to my cellar and I pulled out a bottle of, of Initial, um, that had been disgorged, I think in 2002. So the same period as, as these bottles and, uh, had, had it last night and it was really one of the, Best wine experiences I've had in years. It was whatever absolutely
0: I was amazing. doing last night clearly didn't measure up to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. to that evening, because that yeah. sounds great.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean you know it, it goes back to there's a certain you can't replace maturity in wine. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, breathing. Uh, there's there, there's a purpose for letting wines breathe, and usually, in my opinion, it's not so much to make a a, a young wine taste like an old wine. Um, I usually find that breathing is more helpful for older wines to let them open up after being in bottle for a long for a long time. Is that
0: something you find with Barolo as well, older
1: Barolo? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because
0: I, I think a lot of people uh, get hesitant. Sometimes I know I've had some hesitations, but. Um I've I've seen you decant uh, older Barolo to good effect. Is that something you're a believer in?
1: Uh, I'm, a, I'm a total believer in it. And I I think that that far too many bottles of of <coughs> old Barolo get dr- drunk way too soon after being uh, uncorked or or decanted. Um, typically, if wines from the 60s and 50s, I give at least a couple of hours in a decanter. I mean, if you think the wine is in is in good shape, good shape, then. Uh, yeah, a couple, two or three hours. Um, I've seen, you know, 50, 60 year old Barolo's Im- improve over, over the space of, of five hours even. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's, that's interesting, the other thing to, to watch for is when you first open an old Barolo and decant it. Um, you sometimes will see that the color is kind of brown uh-huh. and the nose is unpleasant. Um, you know, sort of oxidized and you just, you know, you instinctively say, give up. yeah, this mine's yeah, like, dead. Oh. This wine's dead. And, you know, and I do the same thing. Yeah. However, I've got the experience to know don't give up. Finish. Well,
0: that's a really valuable thing to you, say to someone who's opening up a thousand dollar bottle and might
1: well, at that point,
0: think you, yeah. that, that maybe <laughs> yeah. this isn't very good. Yeah. And maybe what you're saying is just give it a little time because it could really
1: come yeah. around. And it, ha- it happens a lot. Um, I mean, not only, do, not only does the nose uh, clear up, um, and, and these oxi- oxidative notes get replaced with you know with wonderful smells of mature Barolo. But the color also is restored uh, by air, and it goes from being kind of brownish to being you know to being a, a, a healthy red. You see it a lot. I mean, it doesn't happen with every bottle. Some bottles are dead. I mean, they're just they're not coming back. But there are a surprisingly large number of, of rolled Barolos where, where, where you'll see that. Um, I, I'm I have a theory about air with wine, and um, as I said, I, I think breathing is is more important for for older wines than for younger wines. Um, but the wines that really respond to it, the, the 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 best seem to be wines that were that were made in an old-fashioned way, where they were subjected to a fair amount of oxygen during their winemaking. I or see during their during their rate. so
0: not <coughs> reductive, not like in a stainless steel container, exactly. but maybe in cement or an old wood, yeah. uh, where there was maybe an open top or it wasn't topped up immediately.
1: And they spent a lot you know, it may have also spent a long time in barrel. I mean, Barolo is a perfect example. I mean, some of those wines spent six or eight years. I mean, Monfortino, sure. Giacomo Cinterno Monfortino, still. Spins uh, up to eight years in in barrel, uh, and so I find that that wines that have been subjected to a lot of oxygen during their that they're making and and that the élevage the you know their their early years, once they go into bottle, once they leave oxidation and go into a as you said a reductive environment a bottle where there isn't a lot of oxygen to go go mm-hmm. go around, that you know that once it comes out of the bottle. It needs to readjust to air and needs to absorb air, which is actually, you know, is, is life-giving uh, for them at that point. And, um, you know, Madeira is the ultimate example of that. Um, you know, if, you've, if, if you have a Madeira that has spent, you know, uh, 60 years in bottle, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I would, I would uh, suggest decanting it, uh, leaving it in a decanter for several days. <clears throat> maybe even up to a week sure um you can kind of tell i mean if it, if it smells good when you've decanted it, it it it's not it may not be so necessary maybe a few hours will be okay or a couple days
0: i really have found that nothing fills the room with aroma like old madeira yeah no, like, it's a good smell how, how amazingly can and just waft over everything It's it's incredible in terms of aromas, I don't know of any more powerful aromas in, in any of wine.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 an amazing wine, and uh, but if it's been in bottle for a long time, it can take a few days. Uh, sometimes, it, it, I, I've had plenty of madeiras that were in bottle for over over a hundred years, um, sure. know, even one hundred and fifty years, where I left it left the wine in a decanter for a couple of weeks. Um, in fact, I've even one of the the traditional ways of restoring a very very old Madeira. That's been in bottle is to decant it into either a, a decanter or into a large bottle called a demijohn mm-hmm. and leave it there for a few months. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll find wines that have that that initially seem to be just completely shot, um, totally restored. I mean, we had a, a, a big Tarentaise tasting as a, a rare variety mm-hmm. yeah. um, in New York uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. And uh, one of the wines, um, I had opened the bottle a year earlier. It, w- it was clearly not in great shape, because I knew the wine well. Um, it had been, but, but the wine had been in bottle for a long time. Um, and it was put into a, a demijohn, with these big bottles. And it was left there for six months. And then it was re-bottled for this tasting. And it was absolutely spectacular.
0: Wow. So, I mean, clearly, a uh, wine made in a traditional fashion uh, has amazing resilience, uh, as we've talked about. But um, how about market resilience? Are we going to see traditional style Barolo get really expensive? Sometimes I feel like there really only seems to be a handful of practitioners left. Um, seems to be increasing interest. I wonder if it's going to go the, the way of old champagne and sort of skyrocket in price. And it's are, are certain producers already there? Or where's the where's the ceiling on that? What do you think is going to happen with that category?
1: Um... It's a great question, and, and definitely uh, you know something to be concerned about. I mean, we are are already seeing you know even you know even just you know it doesn't have to be the tip the top top producers. You know, some in the middle who uh, whose prices have gone up you know fifty to one hundred percent over the last last five years. Um, you know de- that demand does that. I mean, yeah, oh, it yeah, definitely encourages. And you producers. can't blame
0: the producer you who you know sees things fly out the door and people are willing to pay more for it. But when you look at, okay, let's buy traditional style, as we might talk about it, uh, Burgundy, Mm -hmm. there just seems to be so many more options uh, across Burgundy, although those are small producers who don't make a lot of wine. There seems to be a lot of practitioners who are still around using some of the old techniques Mm -hmm. or where, you know, the barrique doesn't seem uh, as uh, noticeable. Uh But then when it comes to traditional style Barolo, you know, once you, you can, Run out of producers before you run out of fingers to count them on, it seems like. Yeah. In terms of how many there really are, how many addresses you can go to. So, are we going to see now that the kind of pendulum has swung towards interest in those producers mm-hmm. rather than kind of more modern style producers? Are we going to see modern style producers drawing back? Are we going to see producers who are in the middle skewing more traditional? And are we going to see a massive price range uh, hike in some of the traditional style rollers of, say, the next 10 years?
1: Um, I, I think we're going to see. Pretty much what's happened in Burgundy, which is the, you know, the the elite producers' wines are going to become, you know, assuming that the market will bear it, will become more and more expensive, more difficult to find, Um, you know, as you find... You know the p- part of the guessing game is is you know is Asia going to start buying Barolo? Sure. You know, and once that happens, I mean, b- the production of Barola, of the best Barolos is really really small. Mm-hmm. There just isn't that much to go around, um, and, and suddenly you've got you know a, a new potential market that's willing to spend a lot of money. That's definitely going to push prices up. So that's a big question mark. Um, I mean, at this point, I think I think. Asia's buying, you know, buying Monfertino, uh, Gaia, uh, some Jacosa. Um, but other than that, I think, you know, the rest of Barolo and Barbaresco is, you know, is pretty much its, its traditional markets. I think that, that, that there's enough wine made in, um, it's a fairly large region, mm-hmm. um, that the prices are going to remain f- Sane, you know, mm-hmm. they may not—they're not going to be as cheap as they used to be, but I think they're still rep- represent really good value. I mean, you look at somebody like the Prototorian and Barbaresco. That's a good example. Over deliver. So well. Yeah, for the price. Yeah, and, you know, With prices, prices have gone up, but they still, there's still a steal, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and they could probably go up a bit more and still be, you know, be really good value. Wouldn't want to see that, but... Do you find
0: uh, it more difficult to find real superstar mm-hmm. producers in the Barbaresco zone than it is in Barolo? It, oh,
1: yeah, yeah. And, that, I mean, you know, talk about history. I mean, there's there's a really good historical explanation for that, and that is that, that, that Barolo, um, you know, was, it was a, a relatively rich, uh, sub region, uh, compared to Barbaresco. I Barbaresco see. was always poor. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so everybody, you know, the, the, the whole idea of these dom- of domains, you know, making their own wine and selling it, uh, until, until Gaia you know, came along, um, really wasn't anybody doing it. I mean, Jacosa, Jacosa did it, but he didn't own his own vineyards. Um, so basically all the growers belong to the prototori and, um, you know, and that goes back over, over 50 years. Um, you would have thought that, <clears throat> that given the way things have changed in the world, that a lot of the produtory members would have left and be, and do their make their own wine, mm-hmm. and, you know, and and sell them for twice as much money. Mm-hmm. But you know, extraordinarily, it hasn't happened, and the produtory members are still the produtory members, mm-hmm. and so um, there's so much loyalty to that organization that there hasn't been the prolif- pro- proliferation pro- proliferation of of small domains like there has been in in Barolo.
0: Has there been historically some resistance in the American market to Barolo as a category? Sometimes I feel like people maybe don't uh, find the wines as appealing early in their career as other wines. And it, it takes a while for people to come around to the idea of Barolo, especially traditional style Mm. Barolo is a little bit more tannic. Um, Do you think that's true or do you see it changing? And if it were true, if you were just getting started with Barolo, what, what might you be eating uh, that would make
1: that wine work a little bit better at the table? Mm. Um, First of all, I, I, I think that the weather is helping a lot with um you mean the weather in barolo weather well, getting a little
0: warmer every year getting
1: warmer uh the la- for the last decade <clears throat> the wines have been noticeably uh sweeter rounder when I say sweet, I'm not talking about about sugar, sure just the you know this uh not quite as bitter yeah no not. N- you know, without, without bitterness, uh, without high acidity, lower acidity, um, more generous flavors, a, a nicer palate feel because of the, because of the weather, even traditionally made, mm-hmm. uh, Barolo. And I think that's actually help, helping it, helping them a lot. And, and I think that gets, that gets, gets balanced by, you know the the incredible nuance that traditional Barolo has that, in my opinion, modern Barolo doesn't have. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think what happens with modern Barolo is you you put the you First of all, I mean, all the winemaking is designed to to put sort of a glossy sheen over it um, to give it this you know a, a, this a, a layer of of of. of, of Flavor of wood um, <clears throat> to make it sweeter, to make it darker, um, to put some spicy uh, oak oak smells into the bouquet. All these things, which you know, make it a little bit more like other wines. It makes it easier for an average wine drinker to enjoy it. However, it robs the wine of what makes Barolo special and what makes the Nebbiolo grape special. So. I think once you have, you know, the, the, the weather's great because it gives people an opportunity to drink, you know, r- young, affordable Barolo. Uh, I mean, there, there's still a lot of, I mean, there's you can buy Barolos for, you know, for $30, 30 to $40. They're, sure. you know, they're knockouts. absolutely mm-hmm. delicious. Um, you know, and so you get people to try them and, find, wow, this really is special. This mm-hmm. doesn't taste or smell anything like what I'm used to. Um, that gets them in the door and then real make makes them realize that you know maybe there's something missing with these you know with these other wines and so i think it's i actually think it's a Things are going in the right direction. Um, and I believe that traditional Barolo and Barbaresco uh, just has an incredible future. And I, I, you mentioned before, are, are some of the more modern producers going to become more traditional? We've seen it already. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to continue. I think, you know, it, you know, it can't be lost on young winemakers in, in, in the Longay looking around. In seeing that the most expensive wine is not from Altari, it's not from Sandroni, it's not from Clerico, it's from Giacomo Canterno. Um, And, uh, you know, it can't be lost on them. And, you know, hopefully they will also have an open palate as well and realize that there really is something special about the traditionally made wines of that region. What were
0: some of the wines – we've talked about some of the wines that really inspire you from that region now. What were some of the wines that got you into the Piemonte in the first place? What were some of the producers that maybe we don't see so much of anymore that really caught your attention yeah. originally?
1: Um, well, I fell in love with Barolo. It was all part of this this book that I was writing in the 80s, which, by the way, I never finished. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering,
0: where yeah. uh, you know, what is the title of that book? Have you thought about ever writing the book? I, I
1: would love to do it. Um, Actually, got a lot of stuff written, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, maybe when I if when I retire, I'll, I'll have time to.
0: So not time anytime do soon, it. unfortunately. Not anytime soon. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but I, I was inspired then. I mean, I you know, I visited. You know, this is twenty five years ago, and you know, had these wonderful visits with you know Bruno Jacosa in his prime. And, sure, and uh, and. Bartolo Mascarello and a great visit with a very young Mauro Mascarello sitting in his kitchen and learning the the whole history of his winemaking, which is a wonderful story because he, you know, he had to battle his father Father. to become a little bit more modern to do single vineyard Barolos. And then once he got his foot in the door and was doing, you know, was experimenting, actually... Thought about becoming a modernist, and yeah. by the 1978 vintage, his his macerations were down to I think it was like six days, wow. uh, from you know uh, 30, a month, yeah, yeah, probably about thirty days, uh, you know, under his father, um, you know, and it's it's that was you know, it was a wonderful experience for me. So I, I fell in love with uh, you know with Barolo. Of I, course, I, the I was corollary
0: great- to that story is that he kind of rejected that. That philosophy oh, and kind of yeah, went back to after the experiments. So, I guess just
1: a note. Yeah. I mean, by the early 80s, by the 82 vintage, he was, you know, he was as classic as just about anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, and today is one of the, you know, great traditionalists. You know, I had the privilege of, you know, in 1980, probably 88, of sitting in his kitchen and learning this history. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have known it. Yeah. But, uh, well,
0: he told me that he, he, he learned through you why his 70 was similar to the Cata Mauricio later yeah. uh, and that was because that his dad didn't want him to make Monpravato as a single vineyard wine and had told him to use the the vines, the Miche vines at the top of the hill that no one cared about yep. and that were not he didn't think were good for wine, uh, to make the first Monprovato in 70. And then you did a vertical with him and you said, why is this 70 so different than all the other Monprovato's until you get to Catamorcio, which he started much later, uh, which was a separate bottling of exactly those right. those wines that he makes into a special reserva. And and he 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 remembered that he'd had this big fight with his dad and that his dad had forbidden him to use the rest of the grapes and so he had been stuck with those vines which now are considered some of the best vine material in the whole area yeah. but at the time uh, were considered kind of like a, a nuisance and and that that was his first vintage uh, on his own
1: yeah I mean the real the real measure of, of that selection that he made in 1970 to, to, to make the first Mont Provato to prove to his father that you could have a great single vineyard Barolo because his father was a, you know, traditional Barola was never single vineyard. It was always a blend. It, sure. was, it was something that was part of the, of the philosophy of winemaking. He had to convince his father with that first vintage of Montprovato, you know, fruit only from that vineyard that it, that it was capable of producing something spectacular. And so, you know, he, he used the best fruit and the best fruit was from this, this particular, uh, clone, uh, or sub-variety, um, uh, Miquette. and, um, and so, as you said, I mean that then let you know thirty years later um well actually it' was about 25, 23 years later led to uh the creation of C- Cato Mauricio, where he um you know he used only again he 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 replanted by s Selección massal those those miquette vines and uh
0: which we should know is one of the most expensive Barolo that you could find now it, it is, wasn't yeah. on release, but it's you know quite well regarded these yeah, days, yeah yeah. <laughs> There was uh, another producer that had a big effect on you, I think. Uh, Was Volana, sort of someone that you'd been
1: interested in? Yeah, a friend of mine uh, in the late 60s uh, was buying Volana in New York a lot. Um, And he was the one who introduced me to it. Um, You know, this was probably about 25 years ago. And I just fell in love with the wines and. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know the story that, uh, of me going to, to, to visit. Mr. What happened Valana? when you, uh,
0: when you made that visit?
1: Well, uh, um, Valana had been, had been dead for, uh, you know, I don't know, probably 20 years, but his son in law was an Englishman, was married to his daughter, um, was, you know, was running the estate. And so I had an appointment to go see him. And this is, I don't know. About ten or fifteen years ago uh had a, had an appointment to see him. but when I got to the hotel um there was this, an urgent message for me that that mis- it said Mr. volana, even though his name wasn't volana that Mr. volana had died the day before he had had a heart attack um and so i never I never visited um, however, I'm really happy to say that that um, his the Englishman's daughter uh, contacted us uh, a couple of months ago, and we are going to start representing Volan. In, oh, I in, didn't know in, in that. Cali- yeah, no, it's all oh, in California. In California, yeah, because yeah. of course
0: in New York it's brought in by Skernick.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 So we're going to be representing in California. So it's you know it, it it's it's all coming it's full full circle. full circle. I
0: recently visited; it was kind of a stunning stunning visit. Um, yeah, I still seeing, haven't been uh, there. Well, I'll show you some pictures. Sometimes it, uh, it's interesting because it's sort of you know not on the well-trodden trail it's you know it's a different area and i think that they're it's kind of like as you say they're still uh rolling out the red carpet because they just don't get that many visitors no yeah so you know you you sit with them and they open up the 55 and you you know have it with them and you can really see the chain of history in that winery it's also quite large um yeah like physical space
1: and the wine the wines uh, today's even then and, and today uh as well and the wines are very reasonably priced yeah very much so it's yeah they're a great deal and um you know they they also have a Gatanara, uh which is actually i guess i think that's their best cuvee right now
0: right now yeah uh, i visited it that site it's really beautiful
1: <clears throat> it? yeah.
0: yeah and some old vines uh, yeah. uh, because that's part of the some of the issue uh with some of the other areas like boca where the the vines aren't there right now. now. They're yeah. replanting, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But they also buy in fruit. It's an interesting time. Like he said with uh, the collapse of Desalani uh-huh. and Farah, that uh, basically, you know, you can't give far away. Like in terms of the small growers, huh. they're, they're begging for someone to take the grapes wow. um, because the major buyer's no longer in the market. So, um, you know, this is a a time for our future Manny we Burke should, or maybe the should, Manny Burke to go should, in there and, and buy, and buy a lot of Farah, um, which of course is a Nebula wine that yeah. doesn't have huge traction in the market, yeah. but is traditional. Yeah. No, I used to know, love Desilij and I actually
1: yeah. didn't know that they they were out of business.
0: Yeah, there was a there was a problem with um some some mislabeled bottles in the mm-hmm. European market that became a sort of a a problem for them. Yeah, and so that that buyer is not there and there's all these small growers mm-hmm. who have nowhere to go yeah basically and it's that kind of feast or famine model that we see sometimes in the traditional style area it's kind of like what happened with madeira at one time mm-hmm. and yeah you know th- there's just no um there's no one buying the grapes yeah and and people willing to give you the grapes for free if you're willing to go pick them and that kind of things mm-hmm. things um it's you know it's another time where you know, we think of these areas in general, the, oh, the Piemonte is quite successful, but, you know, there are these pockets where the success hasn't hit everyone. Yeah. And where there really are, you know, wines that kind of lay undiscovered or or hidden for a time until mm-hmm. someone comes back and, and rediscover them, as, as you have many
1: times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, getting back to your question about the, you know, what, what's inspired me about traditional Barolo. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the biggest inspiration has been tasting, mm-hmm. um, which
0: is you know not not a bad reason to no, be involved in, yeah. with wine. I mean, basically, itself. I,
1: I've always loved. I've always loved the stuff. I, I was like everybody else in the sense that I, I bought in a little bit too much um, in, in the, into the the rhetoric that that. Traditional Barolo was, you know, you know there were some really good, really great producers like Interno and Mascarello, but a lot of it was, you know, the wines were dirty and they were flawed mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know. Which is definitely that something
0: stuff. you heard very recently, as
1: yeah, a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. And that was really, that was the big argument behind the modernist movement. We, you know, we've got great potential here, but we've got to make, you know, we've got to make wines that, you know, that that befit the clean qu- and, yeah, yeah and befit the quality of of the fruit. And so, you know, and it's and they, you know, and so that was the justification for it. Um, you know, come to find out, having tasted, I mean, literally hundreds of old Barolos and barbarescos from from producers, you know, uh, great and small. That there's a lot of great wine out there that was made in the, in the forties, fifties, sixties and seventies. And the wines are surprisingly consistent and they, and they age well. They've held, if they've been well cellared, uh, they're amazingly consistent, which is, which is the reason I've been able to do so many tastings over the years, um, less in New York than in San Francisco of, you know, all these producers that, that you know aren't that famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a producer like Franco Fiorina that I that right. I hadn't heard of probably five years ago. Um, you know, and I've now had a whole bunch of different vintages, and the wines are just absolutely—they're—they're they're beautiful. Or Giovannini Moresco in in Barberesco, sure. which was, you were
0: nice enough to share with me one time.
1: Yeah, those are you know they're amazing wines. I mean, they're just you know scar Which is now
0: not there. It's the Cedar Moresco from, from from Gaia. Gaia. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Um, so I mean, you know. The, the, my biggest inspiration is 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 opening my mind to you know to try bottles um, and you know
0: not to, just take the received wisdom of the the chattering, it, but exactly. to go find out for yourself.
1: Exactly. And so that's you know that's actually been part of what we've been trying to do over the last few years is you know is to convince convince the world that you know there were a lot of good producers in in the region and uh, you know and just open your minds. I mean, at the prices that those wines sell for, you can afford to. I mean, even Mm -hmm. if it's not, even if it's only a a B plus wine, you know, you know, for, for,
0: with the age involved for maturity. uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, for, you know, $75 for a, you know, a 30 year old wine or a hundred dollars for a 40 year old wine, it's still, you know, it's still a pretty amazing wine experience. Another region that I feel exactly the same way about, which I think is, is probably about 20 years behind, uh, Piedmont mm-hmm. is, is Rioja. I see. Where, um, again, same deal, you know, a lot of, a ch- lot of buzz that, you know, there were only a few good producers. I mean, Lopez de Redia, obviously, sure. Cune, yeah. Marques de Morieta. Uh, Marques de Rescal, I mean mm-hmm. the famous producers the big, you, know, yeah, you know more
0: recognizable names
1: acknowledged that their traditional wines were always good. But what about all the others? And um, you know, and why have why have so many producers in Rioja modernized their methods to taste more like other regions? You know, the answer is because the world doesn't be- the-, the world doesn't believe in their wines and their history makes them not believe in their wines and their history. And so they feel compelled that they need to make their wines be more like wines from the rest of the world. And um, so, you know, my next, my next um, uh, frontier uh, and one that I think is going to be, you know, it's going to be, I I think, I think it's going to see a lot of activity, a lot of interest over the next, um, you know, decade will be Rioja because I think that the, the wines, the surviving old wines in that region, um, the prices of wines—not only old wines but young wines—are so are so low for mm-hmm. the quality that they have to be rediscovered. And uh, you know, and I think it's you know it's gonna it's gonna join the list of other traditional wines that people are starting to appreciate. Sometimes
0: what I find is that when there's no current brand name, <clears throat> like for example with uh, Moresco. That we yeah. mentioned, where the winery no longer exists, uh, when there's when there's no current brand name holding the flag high, mm-hmm. the older vintages are really undervalued because people uh, in the market are just not familiar. With those old names, yeah, and they're somewhat hard to come across, even if they were quite prestigious 40 years ago. It's very hard to know that without really doing some some book research and um, finding out, because the story has kind of been broken, and because it's not, um, there's no new release to kind of hype the market. There's no. Uh, value placed on the old wines, which can be spectacular. Yeah. do you find that also the case with smaller producers in other areas?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, that's bad—is where the producer doesn't exist, doesn't exist anymore. What's worse is if the producer has become really modern. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you know it's 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 doubly tough. Right. You know, I mean, it's one thing because people say, are like,
0: oh no, I'm not into that. You know, and you're I mean, like, no, really. Back then, it was different.
1: Yeah. I mean, we just did a '78. Uh, tasting and you know Choretto uh showed really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it surprised a lot of people because, you know, Choretto's, you know, very modern now and it may not be to their these are people who like traditional wine. What they wouldn't the modern later Choretto Choretto wines are not are not so exciting to them and they were just shocked at how good the you know the seventy eight is. Um I mean you see that you see that a lot. And I think it's a big problem in Rioja where You've got so many producers who, um, you know, are just not seen as a, tra- as a traditionalist convincing people. Yeah. But the wines really are good. I mean, right. Lopez de Redia is the notable exception to that. I mean, they have, they have, you know, been true to their, their values. They make, made great traditional wines in the past. They do it today. Everybody gets it. And as a result, you know, Lopez de Redia is the, you know, they're, the, they are the star, mm-hmm. right? right now. Right. In, and in the Ohio.
0: prices have gone up accordingly, I think, I mean, from when I first started yeah. selling them. I mean, I love the wines. Well, but the young
1: wines, actually, I think the prices are still really, really good. I mean, Reasonably. the problem is the older wines, there's been so much demand and they've sold a lot of their stocks it's and the that's, stock, why, you know. that's why the prices have gone up. But there are other producers whose older wines, um, you know, are really good. And I mean, a, a producer that See, that doesn't get the attention that it deserves is bodegas riohanas mm-hmm. um their top wines i, I don't know they, it very yeah, well at all montreal and then Viña albina those are the two the two top wines and wines are just you know they're fantastic mm-hmm. but um they never get reviewed in the press in the us um, they're, they're always been traditional you know so no worries there it's just that nobody's ever heard of them so mm-hmm. you know it's a matter of you know, again, getting people to uh, you know to open their minds and and uh, and really you know, g- you know g- give give wines a, an opportunity to to uh, to show themselves.
0: What are some of the overlooked vintages in some of these areas that people may not know? Like, for instance, with you, I've talked about '79s occasionally yeah. uh, being showstoppers, which isn't a vintage that a lot of people think in Barolo. Oh, '79—that's a big one. But you know, are there tips that you might give to someone who's sort of prospecting?
1: Hmm. Um yeah, I mean, uh definitely there are vintages that will surprise you with how good the the wines can be. I mean, in Piedmont, uh 67, 70, 74, 79 are surprisingly good. 86 is a, you know, oh, that's it, really a, you know, not big, ti- big vintage. time vintage that, you know, that no you know, very few people know about. Um it, you know, but you know, it it It's going to be, it's going to vary from producer to producer and wine to wine to wine. Also, you have to be concerned about how the wines have been, have been cellared. But, um, you know, I think if you avoid the really bad years, you know, like 65, for example, in, in Piedmont, or, uh, you know, I guess 75 would be another one. Mm Uh, you know, you'll probably be pretty wise, but, but give, you know, usually, for the lesser vintages, less famous vintages, the prices are going to correspond to sure. you know to to perceived quality. Yeah, and uh, more often than not, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I mean, I've had some good '77s in Barolo, which is you know Yeah, another. not something
0: anybody talks about. No, 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 because no. it's my birth year, so I know that <laughs> you for know. a fact. Well, Manny, I want to thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and as always, every time I talk to you, I learn a ton. And I, I wish you the greatest of success uh, for what you're doing, because what you care about, I deeply care about. And I love to see the conversation continue.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you, Levy. It's been a pleasure.
0: All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.